So we were in Israel, and I wanted to talk to you about it in a little bit. And the text tonight uh, lends itself to conversation about Israel. And I know a lot of you think I'm making this happen, but I'm not. It's right in the text. We're studying Numbers, as you recall, and we're in Numbers chapter 34 this evening. By the way, just a few more Wednesday nights in Numbers, and then uh, I think we'll, we'll, we'll dive into Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews. It's rich. Uh, and I, 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 if you want to read ahead, that would be good. But for tonight, it's Numbers 34. Let's call this, This is the Land. Why do I say that? Because the uh, first part of Numbers 34 simply describes the borders and boundaries of the land of promise. Israel was encamped right now on the other side of the promised land, east of the Jordan River in modern-day Jordan is where they were. So they could see into the land of promise. And before they got there, God defined its boundaries. This is the kind of text you and I, let's be honest, we read through really quickly because we, we are really hard-pressed to see what its relevance is for us today. I, lots of names we can't pronounce. We don't understand the geography and all the rest. Would you please bear with me? Let me take us through this a little bit, and then I think you'll see, oh, no. There's application from it for us today. So hang in there. Look at verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the sons of Israel, say to them, When you enter, not if, when you enter land of Canaan. Does anyone know why it's called the land of Canaan? Anyone want to? Yeah, because the Canaanites lived there. It was a general a, a generic term for people who lived in the land at the time, Canaanite, the land of Canaan. When you enter, this is the land that shall fall to you as an inheritance, even the land of Canaan according to its borders. Now, here are the borders. This is tough reading, but hang in there with me. Your southern sector, so, so the border of the land is starting in the south. Your southern sector shall extend from the wilderness of Zin along the side of Edom, uh, that's Jordan. And your southern border shall extend from the end of the Salt Sea eastward. Would you like to um, guess as to what a, is another name for the Salt Sea? It's the Dead Sea. And we were there, folks. It is so laden with salt that nothing grows in it. It's quite amazing. There's such high mineral content that you float on it. It's just real. Hey, Christy, I see I got some Dead Sea water for you. I'll give you the friend. Okay. So anyway, it's the Dead Sea in the, in the south is, is the southern border. Then it says, verse 4, then your border shall turn direction from the south to the ascent of Akrabim, that's 20 miles southwest of the Dead Sea. So we're going from the south. Now we're going, we're going west, southwest of the Dead Sea. And continue. The border shall continue to Zin, and its termination shall be to the south of Kadesh Barnea. Now that's about 65 miles southwest of the Dead Sea. And it shall reach Hazar Radar about five miles northwest. So you see we're starting in the south. We're going west. Now we're going up to find the northern border of the land. And it shall continue to Asmon. Now that's about three miles away from the previous place. 
Verse 5, the border shall turn direction from Asmon to the brook of Egypt. Most think that's a place today known as Wadi el-Arish. Wadi el-Arish. It's in the southern Negev desert. We were in it. It looks like it did then. There are camels and sand and all the other kind of stuff. Anyway, that's the place. And its termination shall be at the sea. As for the western border, you shall have the great sea. What's another name for that? That's the Mediterranean. So you see, we start here in south of the Dead Sea. It dips, goes further down, and then it winds up north. And then the western border of the land of promise, we're told right here, is what's called the Mediterranean Sea, which is, so the starting point of the western border is about 50 miles south of a place called Gaza. Have you ever heard of Gaza? The Gaza Strip, it's in the news quite a bit today. Lots of turmoil in the land. It's a strip of land. It used to be in the territory of the Philistines, and now it's a Palestinian community, and uh, they are angry with uh, Israel, to put it mildly, and they vent their anger through little things called rockets and missiles. It's an interesting way of expressing your your anger. The government of Gaza today is uh, Hamas, which is on the United States list of terror groups. So that's what's happening in, in Gaza. So, so the western border begins south of Gaza, goes up the Mediterranean coast and the coastline, and it says that'll be your west border, verse 7. And this shall be your north border. See, so we're tracing that now. You shall draw your borderline from the Great Sea, Mediterranean, to Mount Hor. Now, now don't make a mistake. This is not the Mount Hor on which Aaron died. Earlier in Numbers, we found out Moses went up to a place called Mount... Uh, Aaron went up to a place called Mount Hor and died. This is an entirely different one. This one is 10 miles north of the ancient Phoenician city of Byblos. Byblos. And it is north of modern-day Beirut. Beirut is in Lebanon. So the northern border goes way up into Lebanon. Now, verse 8, you shall draw a line from this place, from Mount Hor to the Lebohamath. Now we're going 50 miles north of Damascus. So Damascus is the capital of what country? Man, you're hearing about Syria in the news, aren't you? Terrible upheaval is happening in Syria. Bashar al-Assad, who is the ruler... Um, is being uh, resisted by many of his uh, citizens. They, do not they don't appreciate his leadership. Uh, I hope you understand what's happening in the Middle East is relatively unheard of, that the people would rise up against um, their leaders. You see, in, in Arab countries in the Middle East, you're not voted into office. If your dad was the king and he passes away, you're the king. So that's kind of how it works. So there are dynasties, familial dynasties, and to uh, rebel against the dynasty is really not something to be taken lightly. Thousands have already been slaughtered. Did you know that? In Syria already. So 
the ancient boundary line of the land uh, given as an inheritance by God encompasses Damascus, Syria, and north. Quite interesting. So that's what we're reading about uh, over here. What verse am I in? Does anyone remember? Okay, thanks. And the border shall proceed to Ziphron, so that's 10 miles now further east, and its termination shall be at Hazar Enon, that's 70 miles northeast of Damascus. This shall be your north border. For your eastern border, you shall also draw a line from Hazar Enon to Shepham, and the border shall go down from Shepham to Riblah on the east side of Ain, and the border shall go down and reach to the slope on the east side of the Sea of Kinneret. What's that? Sea of Galilee. Kinneret is a Hebrew word meaning harp. Harp. Because if you um, stand on the Golan Heights and look down at the Sea of Galilee, it's wider at the northern, northern, northern end and narrower at the bottom. It looks like, vaguely like a harp. So it's called the Sea of Kinneret. And so that's part of the eastern boundary line of the land of promise. In verse 12, the borders shall go down to the Jordan, the Jordan River. Uh, we baptized uh, in the Jordan River on uh, just a week or so ago. And it was so cold, I'm dying just thinking about it. I don't know what possessed us, but anyway, we did it. So, so the border goes from the Sea of Galilee to the Jordan River, and look, its termination shall be at the Salt Sea, which you correctly identified as the Dead Sea. So we made a big circle, is what we did. This shall be your land according to its borders all around. Now verse 13, so Moses commanded the sons of Israel, saying, this is the land that you are to apportion by lot among you as a possession, which the Lord has commanded to give. Meaning, nobody's saying they deserve a thing. Nobody is, uh, is lauding the virtue of ancient Israel. Nobody is saying that because of some good stuff they did, they get good land. Please read the text. God said to Moses, this is the land, and the text clearly says, which the Lord has commanded to give. On the way to Israel, I had the distinct privilege of sitting next to a man with whom I became friends, an Arab man on his way to Ramallah. Perhaps you've heard of Ramallah. It's a West Bank Palestinian city, and um, he was a Palestinian man. Uh, uh, said he, was, uh, he saw me reading something and said, is that church stuff? And I said, yeah, yeah. And so we chatted, and he's from Houston, attends an Arab church, and I thought, good night, this aircraft is going to go down. I got the Jewish guy sitting next to it, but nothing of the sort happened. Uh, we became close friends, although we have difference of opinion, and we shared it for three hours. And uh, he uh, is a hurting man, not a, and my heart goes out. He, and he spoke to me of his family and their plight and all the rest. And, you know, I, I, I don't have explanations for it all. I told him my response is not a satisfying one. I said, these are the things that happen when we 
sinners depart from the ways and will of God. I said, I know that doesn't explain all things, but we've made a mess of things, haven't we? And now we don't have solutions. I grieve at what has happened to your family who's lived in the land for so long, uh, and it's attributable to human sin. You, he was a brother in Christ, and I, one day, will rejoice when the Lord makes it all right. Until then, we'll do the best we can. Uh, but he was distinctly of the opinion that uh, my people have forfeited their place and right to the land because of their sin. I surely could not deny their sin, but I had to, I, 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 I had to argue with him about his conclusion. See, based on verses like this, which the Lord has commanded to give, it does not say if you're on your best behavior, if you do what I say, if you please me. It's unconditional. There's no condition. The first time we see about the promise of land is in Genesis chapter 12, and what looms large are two words, I will. But you do not see I will if you will. It does not say, I will give the land if you will be obedient. If so, I would agree with the man. Israel has forfeited their right to the land because they didn't satisfy the condition. But it's an unconditional covenant. Now, you say it's not fair for some who've been in the land to be supplanted by others. That's right. It's not. God is not bound by principles of fairness. He operates by principles of grace. And you and I just don't get it. He knows what's best. So argue with him, if you will, why he didn't choose to give this land to uh, Irish people or Italian people or whatever. I don't know. All I know is I'm just reading the text here. That's our job. Read the text here. It's not a political statement. I'm just trying to tell you God decided to take this unworthy group of people, no question about it. In fact, that's why he did. The most privileged people on earth, spiritually speaking, and the ones who have wasted it more than any people group on earth, that's the very group of people through whom God could demonstrate his gracious and forgiving character. You think you're bad. Look at my folk. That's the point. And if God can hang in there with us, you are eternally secure. Don't you see the point of it all? So that's what's kind of, all right. Anyway, we, we got off the airplane as friends. Uh, so then what happens is, verse 16, God tells Moses, these are the names of those who shall apportion the land, two of them, Eliezer the priest and Joshua. And then what those guys do you can see it from verse 18 to 29. They pick a leader from each of the 12 tribes to help them. That's what's happening, verse 18. It's called delegation. So verse 18, you shall take one leader from every tribe to apportion the land for your inheritance. And what you get through verse 29 is an enumeration of who those leaders are. Okay, thanks for being patient. Now you have every right to say, so what? Cool. History lesson, thanks. No, it's not a history lesson. It's, uh, it's for today. So let me just suggest to you a couple applications from this text. Number one, God is good. And God loves you. And he loves all his people. However, he gives his people a very small share, generally, of what the world has to offer. That promised land 
was a very limited one, geographically speaking. We see the borders. If you do the math, they amount to 150 miles from north to south. At its widest, 50 miles. Unless the president has its way and moves Israel back to its 1967 borders, in which case at certain places its width will be nine miles across. Yeah. We're talking about a country roughly the size of New Jersey. Here is a good and gracious God who delivered this undeserving people merely because they cried out to him and stayed with them, sustaining them and being their supply and protector for 40 years of wilderness wanderings through thick and thin, bringing them into this land of promise. And when you get there, you say, holy moly, it's crowded here. There's not much to it. About 7,500 square miles. You know, you can be in Fort Worth and drive uh, towards here, and you're going to hit 150 miles long before you get to Houston. I mean, it is not. That's the principle. Folks, God wants to show us through the ancient people Israel that what matters is quality and not quantity. Far better in the place God wants you to be than to have more a share of what the world wants for you to have. Do you know many people in the world today look down on us poor, naive, foolish Christians? So naive in our faith, anti-intellectual, believing in this Jesus without evidence and all the rest. People are feeling sorry for us increasingly because we're so naive and so vulnerable to fraud and all. I don't think we need anyone feeling sorry for us. We do not have a major portion of what the world has to offer. Why? Because God wants us to have what's best. Listen to me. I would rather stand in the place of adoption and forgiveness than have the world's riches. Wouldn't you? So when I look at this, I say, oh, God, I see what you're doing. There's something in it. Psalm 37, verse 16, better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. So many in our day are passing prematurely, many in the category of the rich and famous. They've had a major portion of what the world has to offer. Would you exchange what you have? Would you exchange your birthright for that? No. God loves us. But we're not going to have a major portion of what this world has to offer. Why? It's passing. It's temporary. And God wants us to have what is of eternal consequence. Second application from the text. Do you know there is no lasting benefit to be living within Israelite borders if you have a Canaanite heart? That's why God said remove the Canaanites from the land. See, a Canaanite in the land of promise cannot be blessed by osmosis. You know what the application is? You cannot be a churchgoer and think as a result of your church attendance alone, you're redeemed. You must be personally saved by a personal Savior because you have personally sinned against Him. You cannot be redeemed by osmosis. You're not a Christian because you're 
your parents are. You're not a Christian because you put money in a plate or get dunked in a tank. You're a Christian because you say to Christ, Jesus, come into my heart, forgive me, for I have sinned against you. Transform me from the inside out. Grant me entrance into your promised land, heaven, in due season. It's just a terribly fearful enterprise. To th- you know, you hear this all the time. Yep, I'm going to church. I'm going back to church. It's usually after a national or personal catastrophe. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it's not good enough. It can't be the end. It has to be the means to the end. Church doesn't save. The Savior saves. What benefit is there to live in Israelite territory with a Canaanite heart? What benefit is there to be amongst Christians and refuse Christ? I beg you, because that's how serious it's getting to be. I beg you, take the Savior tonight, the Lord Jesus, who stands ready to take you up in his arms, to cast all your sin behind his back, to tell you that debt you owe, I paid it in my stripes and blood. Now stop thinking of yourself as my enemy and adversary and think of yourself instead as my son or my daughter. I beseech you to make that decision tonight as God enables it. It's serious. Third application. Israel's land was bordered, we see, on all sides, but Israel was not to be isolated from the nations. She had her particular land, but she was not to practice the policy of isolationism. I I, I noticed very graphically that her western border was a sea. You sail from your shore across the sea to other lands. Israel was entrusted with good news about Yeshua, the Jewish Messiah, and Israel was commissioned to take it across land and sea so as to bless other nations of the world. The Lord Jesus came to the Jews first. But but he didn't stop there. He came to the Jews first so that through them the world may know. Let me ask you a question. How have my people done? Let me answer it. Not too good. So the Hebrew of Hebrews and the Jew of Jew, the Lord Jesus came and took care of what his own people failed to do. The gospel is going out amongst all the people groups of the world. My people failed. My Savior has not. I hope the church of Jesus Christ learns from Israel's mistakes and doesn't follow suit. I hope we don't get isolated in our little holy huddles. I hope we are on mission, everyone. I hope we are great commission people. I hope we are intent on spreading the wealth. I hope we're not isolationistic. One time I pastored a church in Ohio and I was visiting uh, two members in the church, a lady and a man, good couple, I asked them just about things. We're making conversation. I asked them about their neighbors. Tell me about your neighbors. Do you know your neighbors? Oh, we don't want anything to do with them. Why not? They cuss. Cuss. 
So church people isolated themselves in their little antiseptic protected environment because the next door neighbors cuss. I felt like cussing. <laughs> Come on. Come on. Don't be like Israel. Mediterranean Sea, wide open. The gospel is to go forth. In a little while, we're going to have the privilege of laying hands on people who are going to do that very thing in a foreign land. That's our mission. That's our great commission. Um, another application. I guess it's number four. The southern border of the land uh, given in the text put the Israelites within very clear sight of their past. It was Kadesh Barnea. That's where uh, they really blew it. Spies went into the land. They came back. Two of the guys said, it's going to be tough, but we can take it, especially since God promised the land. The others said, no way. Giants in the land, we're a bunch of wimps. We can't do it. God's not big enough. And they wandered for about 38 and a half years. From the southern border of this land, they could see Kadesh Barnea and remember. And not only that, they could see Egypt where they were in bondage. You ever wonder why God doesn't blot our past from our minds? Sometimes our past haunts us. Is it just me? Sometimes things hit me. I feel so guilty and ashamed. You know how it is. Sometimes I say, God, what is the deal? Why don't you take these memories away? I'll tell you why. Because then if, if he took them away, I'd be tempted to go back to Egypt. That's why. Would you, Carl? Yeah, you would. I know you. You, you we're all the same. You're just a bigger version. <laughs> the Lord must leave in our mouths a distaste for that which had mastery over us prior to him. We cannot think of the good old days because they weren't. They were bad. And I have to remember just how distasteful it was so that when I'm tempted, and I am, I have to say, no way forward march no retreat so the lord gave them a southern border close enough so they could see cruel taskmasters and bondage and all the rest and say i don't want to go back there anymore that's why he's allowed you to remember your past as well you don't want to go back there either then how about this one did you notice that israel was allotted this land before they even entered into it I find that remarkable. It was taken for granted that it was theirs, but they hadn't even set foot in it. The text uses the words when, when you get there. They weren't even, you know how cool this is? That same God has given me a guarantee of my place of promise way before I got there. I'm not there. I'm here. So are you. I'm assured of my place in heaven before my foot has even stepped down on it. How do I know that? Because this God is the same yesterday, today, and forever before. And as he manifested himself with Israel, don't you see that's why it's important to see how God dealt with Israel. He's, that's how he's going to deal with us. It's a guarantee. When you get to heaven, on my merits, not yours, contingent on your faith placed in me. When you get there, 
we'll be together forever. While we were worshiping, I found myself getting a little tired. I apologize. It's jet lag. And I think of the time when in that place of promise, I'll never get tired of worshiping. That's what's heaven. You don't get distracted. How am I looking? How am I singing? What do people think? It'll be nothing. Can you imagine what it's like to be absolutely focused undistractedly on the worship of the king? No, you cannot imagine that, and neither can I, because we ain't there yet. But we're going to be there. How do I know it? I have God's word on it. I need some evidence. Israel. Before they got there, they were there. And then this final application Sadly, the full extent of the land defined in this text, the full extent of the boundaries and borders of the land has historically never been possessed by Israel. Except for a brief time during the reigns of David and Solomon. The full extent of the land from Euphrates River to Gaza Strip from Dan to Beersheba was never fully possessed. Why? Well, if you ask the friend who I sat with on the plane, he'll say, because Israel sinned and therefore God withdrew his promise. No, he didn't. He gave Israel title deed to the land unconditionally, but he said you can never fully enjoy it, nor possess it to its full extent if you disobey. Two covenants, Genesis 12, Abraham, I will give you. Later on down the road, Mount Sinai, covenant with Moses, I have given you the land, but your enjoyment of your time in the land is contingent on your obedience. So Moses traces out the blessings of obedience and the cursings of disobedience. I'll tell you one thing you cannot avoid when you go to Israel. You see the effects of disobedience. Enemies, upheaval, hatred, unsettledness, potential war on every front. There would be no problem in Damascus. We wouldn't be messing around with Euphrates, Iran, and all the rest if my people had obeyed God. Now, why is it important to see that though Israel has forfeited full enjoyment of the land, they haven't forfeited the land? I'll tell you why. Because it's a parallel to how God deals with us. Listen. When you were redeemed, when you were saved, there was no I will if you will. You came with an empty hand. You had nothing to all. You said just as I am without one plea. And you received the inexpressible gift of salvation. That is an I will. I will save you. And you have been irreversibly saved. But the full enjoyment of your salvation and all of its blessings is very much a function of obedience. Which is why the most miserable person on earth is not an unsaved person. It's a saved person who knows better. 
a saved person sinning who knows better. That's a person who is not forfeiting salvation, but who is forfeiting the full outpouring of the blessings of salvation. That's why David prays, restore to me the joy of my salvation. You have to be born again, but you do not have to be born again and again and again and again. No way. I have God's word on it. Look how he dealt with Israel. But I learned from Israel. Chaos, conflict, armies, fallout shelters, bombs, missiles, all the rest. Because they said to the God who put him in the land, no, thank you. And he grieves and says, okay, have it your way. And that's what you have in Israel today. Well, I want to learn from it. I don't want that in me, and I know you don't want it in you. Therefore, obey the Savior. Not to be saved. No, because you already are. How much more of the blessings of a closer walk with Jesus can be yours and mine if we would only trust and obey? We should sing it. You know that one, trust and obey? Sing with me. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are the Savior. You've done it all. You've cast all our sin behind your back. We cannot, we need not, we will not add to the throes of your suffering on the cross for sin. It's done. It's over. It is settled. It is finished. It is paid in full. The debt we owe, thank you, Savior, for saving us with so great and irreversible a salvation. And yet, we, like Israel, squander the inheritance, narrow the borders, invite adversaries, tormentors, the evil one, into our life to divide, to disrupt, to fill us with dismay, when in fact the fruit of your Spirit in us is to be love and joy and peace and self-control and goodness and kind. That's our inheritance, and it is diminished by disobedience. Help us to learn from Israel and to make us to be ones who more and more trust and obey so as to realize the full extent of the blessings of your salvation here and now and then in our place of promise to come. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.